John chapter 4 and verse 46. John chapter 4 and verse 46. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. The Lord has travelled to Galilee from Jerusalem, where he had attended the Passover feast, and where he had performed many miracles. In accordance with the law of Moses, Jewish males from all over Israel uh, went up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so Galileans would have witnessed the Lord's miracles when they were in Jerusalem. The Lord had already performed one miracle on a previous visit to Galilee, the time when he had changed water into wine at Cana. So we're told in verse 47 here, when he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son who was at the point of death. And so we are told here about a nobleman who is very concerned about his sick son. Now, it's possible that this particular nobleman uh, was a courtier to Herod Antipas, the tetrarch or governor of Galilee and Perea. And so this man was perhaps a prince. He he was certainly a very well-connected person. His son, however, is dying and he is racked with anxiety. Now, he may have witnessed the Lord's miracle working in Jerusalem. And hearing that the Lord had arrived in Galilee, he travels the 16 miles from Capernaum to Cana to plead with the Lord to come and heal his son. The Lord's initial reply to the nobleman on receiving this request is something of a rebuke. For we read in verse 48, Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Now, we see by the plural word ye there, that this is a rebuke, not just to the nobleman, but to the Galileans generally. And it tells us something about the spiritual shallowness behind the warm reception which the Lord had received in Galilee. 
The Galileans, and indeed the Jews as a whole, had a tendency to seek after signs and wonders in an unwholesome way. As our Lord teaches in Matthew 12, when he was asked to manifest some kind of miraculous sign. He says in Matthew 12 and verse 39, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So this is very interesting because when asked to display a miraculous sign, the Lord refers his inquirers to the Old Testament scriptures instead. He does not perform a miracle as the scribes and the Pharisees asked him to do, but he referred them to the scriptures. So the desire to see miracles as a prerequisite for coming to faith actually indicates a seriously rebellious heart on the part of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, they witnessed many of our Lord's miracles. But they still asked to see more miracles and different miracles and more dramatic miracles. And they still remained unhumbled before Almighty God. And so their very emphasis on asking to see signs was a wrong emphasis. In any case, man has no right to ask God to perform miracles in order that he might believe. Man cannot lay down the terms to God upon which he might deign to have faith. Demanding a sign is in effect a refusal to believe on the terms which God has laid down. The very essence of Christian faith, however, is that it is a believing in what we do not see. In Hebrews 11 and verse 1, we are told that faith is the evidence of things not seen, the proving, the making real of things 
not seen. How do we apprehend spiritual reality, which we can't physically see? It is by faith. The Lord says this in John 20 and verse 29. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. No man can know God by means of sight, for God is spirit. So to know God must be by faith. And this is why the Apostle Peter, in his first epistle, 1 Peter 1 verse 7, speaks of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable. None of us has ever physically seen the Lord Jesus Christ, but we believe in him with all of our hearts. God has chosen to record certain miracles for us in Scripture. And there are many, many more miracles which have not been recorded in Scripture. The greatest of all the miracles is the Lord's resurrection from the dead. Now, beyond this written record in God's word of the miracles which our Lord performed and also which the Old Testament prophets performed. Beyond this written record, it is not necessary for anyone today to have personally witnessed any miracles to enable him or her to come to faith. It's simply not necessary. And so, for example, the possibility of a healing miracle should not be tendered to non-believers to induce them to come to faith. And... For a person to wait to see a miracle before believing is in fact an excuse for not believing. It is in fact an act of hard-hearted rebellion to say I will believe if I see a sign. Now the word of God teaches us that the natural creation in which we live, God's creation all around us, that in and of itself is sufficient reason for all people to be without excuse for their unbelief. And so for men to need the sight of miracles in order that they might believe is quite simply not necessary. Now, the sufficiency of the creation to render men without excuse 
is, of course, brought out clearly in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, verse 19. That which may be known of God is manifest in them, in men. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So the spiritual reality of the existence and omnipotence of God is perceived by looking at the physical world all around us. We need no other sign or miracle or wonder above what God has created. So the natural creation is a testimony to the truth of God. And so when there's a storm, when there's a torrential rain, when there's flooding, we should not say, oh dear, it's climate change. We should humble ourselves before God because he controls the elements. Every single person already has more than enough evidence of the power of God in the creation without any need whatsoever to see more miracles. Now we read in John 3:18 in the previous chapter here he that believeth not is condemned already. Not he that believeth not is justified because he hasn't yet seen enough miracles. But no, unbelief is culpable. Unbelief is not a neutral position taken up by sincere people who haven't yet seen enough evidence. Unbelief is deliberate defiance against one's maker. The God of perfect justice would not condemn for not believing those who never had sufficient means whereby they could believe. He would not eternally condemn those whom he had never drawn by his grace. All people, however, have been drawn by God's common universal grace because all people live in God's creation. Now, in Romans chapter 2, Paul speaks of the Gentiles as having not received the special revelation which the Jews had received. Nevertheless, the Gentiles were still responsible to God for keeping his law because they live in God's creation. Romans 2 verse 14. When the Gentiles which have not the law 
do by nature the things contained in the law. These having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing them witness. So what we have there in Romans 2 is a, is a statement of what we might term common grace, whereby God speaks to all men and draws all men. Even those in the Old Testament period, which was the majority of mankind, who had not received the special revelation of the Old Testament prophets. So this tells us that God's grace is working upon the heart of even those who have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this means that not having actually heard the gospel will not exonerate anyone on the day of judgment because of God's common grace speaking through the creation. So God draws men through everything that he has created. Non-believers enjoy so many benefits through God's common grace. They have homes, they have families, they have employment, they have food on their tables. That is all rendering them without excuse for their unbelief. So God draws through the creation. He also draws men through his providential ordering of their circumstances. God is speaking to non-believers all the time through their circumstances. And when they break his commandments, it always leads to trouble. God is speaking. All men have a God-given conscience. Now, they can neglect it so it does not work properly, but it's there, and evolution can't explain a conscience. So God is working through creation, through circumstances, through conscience. He's drawing men to himself. There is no one living today who has a right to argue I cannot believe because insufficient evidence has yet to be presented to me. No one can make that excuse. No one has the right to ask. Show me some miracles, some signs proving why I should believe. No. Rather, such people should be told, your unbelief is not because you have not witnessed miracles. It is not because an insufficient testimony has been made to you. It is because you do not want to believe. It is because you prefer your sin. That is why the majority of people reject the Christian revelation. They do not want to believe 
they prefer their sin. Now our Lord did not tell the scribes and Pharisees, I quite understand that you are not able to believe until you see some more miracles. But he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And he likewise rebukes the Galileans here in this verse 48. And uh, particularly speaking to the individual nobleman, but we note by the plural uh, pronoun ye that he's referring to all the Galileans. Then said Jesus unto him, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. So the nobleman is obviously included in this rebuke. You do not yet believe in me as the son of God, but you will perhaps believe in me if I heal your son. And so what the Lord is saying to the nobleman is you simply must not transact with me on that basis. Now we could ask a non-Christian today, if someone whom you once knew and who has died were to come back from the dead in order to tell you about the reality of heaven and hell, would you believe him? Well, the non-Christian would presumably say, well, if I could actually see him stand before me, yes, of course, I would believe him. What more evidence would I need? The reality, however is actually that the non-Christian would not even believe that testimony. Even under those circumstances, he would not believe. And we have this on our Lord's own authority. He tells us in the parable of Lazarus and of the rich man in hell, that if Lazarus were to rise from the dead and go back to earth to tell the rich man's brothers about the agonies of hell, then despite this, they would still not repent and believe. Luke 16, verse 31. This is a remarkable statement. If they hear not Moses and the prophets neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So in other words, if a man is not willing to believe the Bible, they will not believe no matter what miracle is presented to them. So if a non-Christian is not willing to believe the written word of God, the miracle of a dead man coming back to the earth to speak to him will not convince him either. That is what the Lord teaches. 
So the problem with the non-Christian is not that he has insufficient exposure to the miraculous. His problem is that he has a sinful heart which prefers his unbelief and which therefore resists God's gracious drawing of him. So the church today does not need miracles to make evangelism effective. To impress the unbeliever who will otherwise remain unimpressed. All that is needed today for people to be saved is to declare the truth of scripture. That is all that is needed. Because men already have sufficient evidence to render them without excuse for their unbelief. In Matthew 13 and verse 58, when the Lord was in his hometown of Nazareth, we are told he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Not he did many more miracles because they were not believing, but he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So he did not use miracles to squeeze belief out of those unwilling to believe. Now when our Lord raised a different Lazarus from the dead, not the Lazarus in the parable, but the other Lazarus. He called him out of the tomb in which his corpse had lain for four days. And now when that happened, many of the Jews did indeed believe in him. Although it is by no means certain that their belief was anything more than just temporary faith and religious excitement. For they were very soon to be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Now, the Pharisees and the chief priests also witnessed the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead. But did it change their hearts? They went on to plot to have both the Lord and Lazarus put to death. So how can miracles guarantee faith when we have this plain evidence here? Further on in John's Gospel, John 12, 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, yet they believed not on him. Though he had done so many signs before them, yet they believed not on him. Now, that was after, after the raising of Lazarus. News of which went all round Jerusalem. But even after 
the raising of Lazarus, after the display of so many mighty miracles, yet the mass of the people do not believe. So miracles do not guarantee real lasting faith. So we read in this verse 48, Jesus said unto him, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Now the nobleman has doubtless been chastised by that rebuke. He perhaps now pursues his request with even more thoughtfulness about and reverence towards the one to whom he speaks. And so he says this in verse 49. Sir, come down ere my child die. Now, it is evident from this request by the nobleman that it has not crossed his mind that the Lord could heal his son without actually travelling the 16 miles to Capernaum. Because he says, come down and heal my son. But our Lord now reveals that he is far more powerful than the nobleman had initially imagined. Verse 50, Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. Now what John gives us here is of course a summary. But there are obviously great things going on in the heart and soul of this anxious father during this conversation. The nobleman has now reached the point where he is able to believe that the Lord can heal his son without personally going to see him. He is beginning to recognise Jesus of Nazareth for who he really is, the eternal son of God. And so the nobleman is beginning to respond to God's working upon his heart and conscience. He perhaps takes to heart the other miracles which he may already have seen at Jerusalem. And he now believes what the Lord says simply because he says it, even though he has probably seen other miracles. He now believes what the word has what the Lord has said without the aid of personally witnessing any further miracle. He now sets off to return to Capernaum. Verse 51 And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour which he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. Verse 53. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth. At that point, He himself believed and his whole house. 
So the man's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah and as God incarnate is now confirmed. At the very moment at which the Lord had been speaking to him in Cana, his son was healed 16 miles away in Capernaum. Now the Lord's power to work such miracles was a sign of his deity, but it was chiefly a sign of his mission to save men from their sins. That is the significance of the healing miracles. Not healing in and of itself, but pointing forward to the most important healing of all, which is being saved from our sins. You see, a sign points you somewhere else. A sign in itself is not the object, the key object. A sign just points to something which is the key object. And so we must not have an unhealthy preoccupation with the miraculous. However, there are many miracles recorded in the scriptures for us, for our benefit, to help us. This is God being gracious to us. And when non-believers are exposed to the word of God today, the accounts of these miracles should move them to believe. They have a vital role to play. However, no one today must then demand to see further miracles because we have quite enough evidence of the Lord's mighty power here in his word. And the Lord Jesus Christ declares that it is an evil and adulterous generation that keeps asking for signs. A man must not believe in Jesus Christ because he can heal, but because he alone can save us from our sins. A faith which rests solely upon the excitement of miracles will be a shallow and a temporary faith. Now, yes, we all take on board and rejoice over the mighty miracles of our Lord during his earthly ministry. They are a vital testimony to our contemporary generation. And our God, of course, is well able to perform mighty miracles today. But it is not his normal method of working. And no one has any right to demand to see miracles. And miracles are not necessary to make evangelism effective. In fact, the greatest and most wonderful miracle of all is a sinner upon hearing the preached word of God being convicted of sin, 
Fleeing to Christ for mercy and being born again of God's spirit. That's the greatest miracle of all which we should be focusing upon. The miracle of the new birth is the supreme miracle. And it is what is foreshadowed by all the lesser healing miracles. Because the new birth is the total healing of the man unto everlasting life. A dead sinner being made alive forevermore. Let us focus on that miracle. So let no one today require contemporary miracles as a condition for faith. This would simply be evidence of an unwillingness to believe. The natural creation all around us is in and of itself sufficient reason for all to be without any excuse for their unbelief. God has done more than enough to make his truth known to men. And he continues graciously to draw people. He speaks to them through the creation their circumstances, their consciences. And he speaks to them supremely in the preaching of the gospel. So the obligation is upon every single non-Christian to respond to God's gracious initiative and to realise that God has already spoken to him. All are under an obligation to submit to their maker, to repent of sin and to flee from the wrath to come. God is not under obligation to prove himself to anyone. He has given more than enough revelation to be sufficient for every single human being to come to Jesus Christ. God does not have to prove himself to anyone Because the Lord Jesus Christ taught an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. What we need today is not more miracles, but courageous gospel preaching, calling sin by its proper name. Amen.